Welcome to Ecobolic Radio, a listening experience dedicated to making the world stronger, one conversation at a time. Because strength is never a weakness. Welcome to Ecobolic Radio with your host, Eric Woodski. Today's episode, I get to sit down with head strength and conditioning coach for the Anaheim Ducks of the NHL, Mark Fitzgerald. Mark is also the owner of Elite Training Systems, based in Whitby, Ontario, as well as the head performance and combine development coach for Under Armour Canada. Mark and I go into detail about how to read body language of athletes to predict success and the necessity of good communication and human interaction at the highest level of human performance. All right, Mark, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. It's uh, I'm really looking forward to talking to you about the NHL, your experiences with hockey, and what it's like strength and conditioning at that level in particular. Yeah, you know what? I think um, you know hockey's still a um, a sport that's learning as far as strength and conditioning goes, and that's not a, a jab against anybody. But I think uh, we still have a long way to go. I think there's you know some really smart guys out there that are doing some great things. I know that there are in the NHL, and uh, you know especially on the private side now as well. So it's it's definitely something that's growing, and I feel like it's a, a privilege to be a part of it. Now, you've been in the strength and conditioning industry for quite a while. Like, when I look back at your history, you've been, like, head strength coach combine with Under Armour Canada for more than a decade. Mm-hmm. And when you look at that, along with your personal business of elite training systems, the ETS, in uh, Whitby, Ontario, how did you make the transition from working in Canada to eventually getting a gig in the NHL? Well, I think, um, number one, I think I'm very fortunate. I think I was surrounded by a lot of people who, and, and I still am, you know, that give you opportunities and open doors and um, I'm a pretty hardworking guy. And, you know, I think when I have those opportunities, I've, I've kind of taken them and ran with them as, as best I can. Um, when I was working, um, when I was first starting out as a coach, I was lucky enough to work with a guy named Adam Foote. And I don't know where you are right now, if you're in Colorado, but he's a legend around that uh, around that area. Absolutely. And uh, uh, If I think back, I think uh, this is totally off the cuff Canadian comment, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure, I'm pretty sure somebody I grew up with, I'm, I'm going to have to confirm this, but I'm going to take a wild 20-year-old thought out of my head and say that one of my buddies dated his sister. Oh, no. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, I, I think I'm going to go that far back. That's I, I, yeah, yeah, that name is uh, extremely. I'm going to have to confirm that with my brother, okay. but I think we have one degree of separation. <laughs> Don't tell him that, but anyways. Um, no, it's exactly it. Um, you know, so he, I, I met him. He's a whippy guy where I'm originally from, and he. Uh, I have two older brothers. I'm the youngest of three, so one of my oldest brother or my oldest brother, sorry, was kind of buddies with him. And, um, you know, just, he found out that I was, you know, getting into coaching and I, I played football. I mean, I played hockey, but not, you know, all my buddies played junior and were drafted and all that kind of stuff, but I didn't really play hockey. I started playing football in high school just cause body type was a little more suited for that. Um, and Adam opened sure. up a lot of doors for me, you know, and, and gave me an opportunity to work with him when, you know, prior to his Olympic games and, you know, being in the NHL for as long as he played at the time, I got him when he was pretty banged up. So I ended up learning a ton. Just, you know, I was so green, but I had to learn on the fly as to how to work with a guy like that because, 
you know, he'd point to his oh, surgery here, surgery here, surgery there. It's like, well, we can't do any of the stuff that I know how to do. So I better start learning, you know, some different methods in order to get this guy big and strong because that's what he needed to be. He was a very physical guy. Right. He liked to punish people and that was his game. And, um, you know, that opened the door to uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Toronto Marlies. I was there for um, six seasons. And really, once I started working there, the hockey world is so small, good and bad. Um, it really, you know, got, exposed me to that level of hockey and working for the Maple Leafs. It's, you know, one of the biggest organizations in the world, you know, Absolutely. opens up a lot of doors, too. And that's when I, I moved into my facility when I after a year or two after I really uh, took a full time job with them. So that was kind of, you know, an, an eye opener and. At the same time, I'm growing my family, getting married, all that kind of stuff. And my last year in Toronto, I had a, another year on my contract, but the gym was really going well in, in Whippy and with uh, with ETS. And uh, but my wife had just had our twins, so we had a we had a two year old at home, and then we had boy girl twins. Uh, you know, so I was driving into Toronto every day, and you know, running the business, it was a lot. And I just I just decided to resign from you know, the, the Toronto gig so I could just focus on my yep. business and the family and what have you. And family, you know, it's funny how the hockey world works a year later, I get a phone call from, you know, the Anaheim ducks saying, are you interested in this job? I said, well, yeah, I guess, but you know, <laughs> you, you really want me to move to California, you know? And right. You know, that was on a Monday. I had another call on the Wednesday and on the Friday I was flying down there to have an interview. So how is that? So that's going to be an interesting question. I know people that are listening are trying to put the pieces together and they don't realize like when I was in the NFL, it's very simplistic. And I, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean it in the sense that if you work for the Cleveland Browns, you live in Berea, Ohio, and you work in a facility just down the road. So now with the NHL being what I always think of is a, is a dual citizen sport with Canadian and American leagues, how much of a move is that and do you and how much of your year do you now spend in california oh it was a gigantic move and one that i'm not looking forward to doing anytime again soon um it was so fast because i i, I said yes to the job in late july which is very late for the nhl like usually if you're you know the hiring and firings happen kind of right at the end of the year and then, right. you know, the new people are in place by July 1st. That's kind of our calendar year. So right. You know, right there, I'm, I'm three, four weeks behind. So I basically accepted the job and then I had about 30 days to kind of pack up and go. And obviously my wife and three children now, um, you know, it's not that easy. We were selling our house at home anyways, which is kind of odd. Funny how these yep. things work out. Um, so I left before my family did. I was in Anaheim for about six weeks before they were. And I left a lot of it on my wife's shoulders, which uh, she doesn't like to talk about um, as far as, uh, you know, tidying some things up and, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, and now, you know, we're at the point where we really like it in California. You know, it's obviously a, a beautiful place to live. And I just felt like the moment I stepped off that plane to California, it was, you know, opportunity, you know. And, and I right. oh, you, you probably understand that, too, is just as far as anything fitness health nutrition like everybody's in california you know so i feel everybody it's just it's ridiculous and the the people that i've met the companies that i now you know working doing some more work for and what have you it's just it's been incredible you know so it's 
and there's nothing wrong with Canada. I love, obviously, I'm Canadian. I love Canada, but just in terms of opportunity and that kind of entrepreneurial, you know, feeling, mindset. spirit, whatever mindset, whatever you want to call it, is just it's so alive here. It's 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 crazy, and um, you know, I, I think more and more that I'll be trying to spend more and more time in California and, and maybe even you know start something out here um, because the, you know you make it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, you make a really good point because it's like initially when I came down to the U.S., you know, we're talking 20 years ago, I came down for sports, but I came down because I knew that was really the only opportunity that I had for the sport of track and field. And so what ended up happening for me is I went down, you know, 20 years ago, not realizing that schools eventually would sort of pick up in Canada and track, but to a, a major degree, they still haven't. And the same seems to hold true for the private sector of sports performance and fitness in the sense that, okay, California's got, what, 36 million people. Canada's got 36 million people. Mm -hmm. And so you get that condensed population in a world where in which, with California, for example, it is a beach culture. Florida's a beach culture. And that changes the entire psychology, you know, and not to shit on Wisconsin, but, you know, Wisconsin is under snow, Toronto's under snow six months of the year. It's just not quite the same. It doesn't mean that they're not fit people, but it's not a cultural thing, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. And I mean, you know, just I see our kids and they're still young, but, you know, they, you know, they, they want to be outside more, you know, and we're playing road hockey on our street now. And our neighbors are looking at us kind of funny, but I love it, you know, and my son had a, right. uh, my six-year-old had his first baseball practice the other night, you know, and we're under the lights and it's, I'm wearing shorts and a t-shirt and I'm like, you know, like you can't beat it. And that's, no. that's just a family life. The fitness stuff, I mean, it's just, you know, I take a day trip into LA and, you know, go meet with some folks at USC, you know, go over to Gunnar Peterson's place, like the, the smart right. people that are, you know, doing stuff out here. It's just, you know, and there's room. That's the best part too. I feel like right. a lot of those other cities that even like Toronto, it's man, there's, there's not a lot of room to kind of grow and, and build stuff. But here because of the condensed population and what have you, there's, there's room. Yep. And that's like that feeling, you know? So I got a question. Cause that brings up a good point. Like, you know, a bit of my history with the Poliquin group and we used to do a lot of stuff in Toronto specifically, you know, it would be a good lives and, and using the good life gyms off and on. And and the city's not small. Like, L.A. is a monster. Don't get me wrong. L.A. and then the surrounding cities that it, it is now swallowed is, is incredible. It's like New York City. But Toronto's not tiny. But I always felt that Toronto was ex the same, extremely saturated for a marketplace. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is in Canada? Like, why do you think Calgary, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, which I don't have as much experience with, they become very saturated very quickly. Like a kid I went to high school with owns crash conditioning out in Calgary. And I don't know if people can really compete with Doug Crashley out there. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't know if there's room for multiple gyms like that in Canada in one city, which sometimes confuses me. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm in the same confusion. And I know Crash really well. We, we were just there uh, not too long ago. So I, I went to his gym with one of our a couple of our players and did a workout there 
Always trying to do I it. feel bad that I may have thrown him in a locker at one time in high school. <laughs> <laughs> like I've, now all these years later, he's a super successful guy. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, God, I think he – because he was a little bit younger than me, and I, I don't think that he may have escaped it. Yeah, you got to go through that. You gotta, I had two older brothers, so believe me, it's, uh, I, I'm paid them back now. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know what? It, it's an interesting thought because I, I agree with you. I mean, how do you how do you compete with Crash? You know, and it's he's got such a great and obviously he's just an example. But I feel like you know, yep. Toronto's the same way. Where you know, I just think the well, I, I think part of it too is that, and you mentioned it already, or you you hinted at it with sport performance. I think when people think sport performance, they think training for hockey. In Canada, you know, and if you're not mm-hmm. you're not training for hockey, then well, what are you doing? You know, and that's right. That's something that I think still has to be fixed, and it comes with education. It comes with exposure to more sports, you know. And you know, my company now is doing so much more work in uh, rugby, soccer, you know, sports outside of hockey that are growing like crazy, but they just don't get the attention, you know. Right. So I think that's part of the reason is that you know these centers that are basically you know put around hockey if you're not making you know if you you can still make money at just being hockey like i think it's going away but you can still get away with it for right now but eventually yep. you're you're not going to be able to do that you have to be multifaceted and that's what i've always told my staff is that i don't want to be a hockey gym yes i've i have my experience in hockey and i work in the nhl and yeah we're you know we're going to grow our hockey program but i want to you know i hired two rugby guys to I, and I said to them specifically start growing rugby because it's a huge market i mean soccer speaks for itself I, i'm opening a new gym within a soccer facility there's i think there's between eight and nine thousand kids in their program which wow. dwarfs hockey you know that's incredible it is and and you know the parents and the kids aren't as quote unquote crazy as the hockey people at least I don't think sure you know with yeah. oh my kid's going to be in the NHL you know the routes yeah. that I like to, or the, the sports I want to focus a little bit more on are those ones that are you know the the pathway is school because right. you know on the business side you get them for a lot longer and yeah. on the you know sport performance side it's a lot more achievable you know, like you're, you're not dangling, a, you know, a one in a million chance. You're, you know, if you got somebody who's got the athletic potential and the sport background, like there's a, a much higher chance of success in terms of scholarship or playing career. Absolutely. And, and I think that's a really good point. Like I know growing up in Canada, you know, I grew up in a ski town, but hockey was still the 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 lotto ticket, right? So everyone always thought, well, if we could just have that one kid you know, that, that makes it to WHL, makes it to the NHL, gets that paycheck. That was our equivalent to basketball, football, baseball, et cetera. Mm. And, and because of that, people in Canada, in my experience, as from the athletic and the coaching side, were like, okay, we can justify a financial investment into the preparatory phases of a hockey player because we have seen the financial return on that value, mm-hmm. potentially. Where is, you know, coming up through the track and field world or even when I competed in downhill skiing and even downhill skiing has a financial reward. But in Canada, it's so hit or miss with people's perception of it that almost every level of coaching that I experienced until I went to the U.S. was volunteer. Yeah. And it was almost assumed 
or expected that you were not to pay these coaches. Oh, yeah. That somehow it was for the moral good. Now, how did you work around that? Because obviously I left, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, left, I left when I was young enough that I, I never went back and dealt with it. But I remember talking to people that were sort of like put aside by the idea that you would pay the ski coach. Yeah, you know what, I think I even dealt with it when I was a younger coach and, and trying to, you know, get my name out there and, and get people to recognize what I was doing. And I, again, I say it to our young employees and our interns, I said, I did a lot of work for free, you know, and right. it's not, you know, I feel like it's something you have to go through, but I'm not, you know, stringent on, hey, you know, you got to work for free, but it also makes you realize, hey, do I really want to do this? Like even if I was getting yes. paid, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to coach? And to me, it's the only thing I've ever been half decent at. So it's it was a right. it was a natural fit because I liked I liked the responsibility. I liked you know everything around coaching and and you know kind of helping people. I think was the underlying tone. And there's a lot of yeah. jobs you can do in terms of helping people, but this is just the one I gravitated towards. And I I think that you're right in the fact that the, the anything outside of hockey doesn't hold as much value, but it is changing. It's slow as hell, yes. but it is changing because people are seeing that there are alternate routes to quote unquote success, you know, and right. the hockey route, I mean, we see it every year with these kids that are coming out of minor midget, which is the draft year in, in Ontario. So they're 15, 16 years old and, you know, they're highly touted, they're this, they're that. And a year later, you know, they didn't make the team. It's kind of almost over, you know what I mean? And it's like they're, yeah. they're, the hockey cycle is spitting kids out at 16. And then that's incredible. it is incredible because it's like, no, it's not over. That route, right. you know what I mean? Like that route may be closed, but there's so many more. But, I mean, we could go down that rabbit hole of, you know, how that is changing our athletes, but we don't have to get that. But, I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's almost like the the Olympic gymnastics mentality. Yeah. Right? Like their career is over at 16, not realizing that these kids still have an entire collegiate career that they could transition into if they chose to. Yeah. And, I mean, it's, you know? it's I think – Unfortunately, a lot of, you know, whether it's Hockey Canada or, you know, these other leagues, and I'm not saying Hockey Canada is responsible, but they should pay more attention to multiple pathways instead of just one because, you know, the, the statistics still tell you, you know, less than 1% of the kids in, just in the Ontario Hockey League are going to play in the NHL. You know, right. so you, you know, there's other factors in play here, and that's a, that's a pretty low number, you know, so it's super low. You know, it's not over if you don't make it there. There's lots of paths. I have, I could tell you countless stories of kids that don't get drafted and don't give up, and that are now playing in the NHL. You know, and that's that's the, those are the best stories. Absolutely, and that brings up a good question. Like from the sports performance standpoint, you know, how do you sit down and have a an honest conversation with a kid who maybe is for a million reasons a slightly slower physical developer? Mm -hmm. You know, so like I had a buddy, for example, that at 16, you know, I, I think the kid was still sitting right around, oh, geez, I'm going to say 165 pounds. And he eventually went on to be an All-American in the decathlon, but it took him until his junior year to really fully develop. And then all of a sudden you're dealing with a, a six foot three, 210 pound freak. Yeah. <laughs> 
so how do you have that conversation with them that you're like, listen, I, I, I know hockey starts us young because that's the way it's sort of progressed, but I hate to break it to you. You're only 16 years old and you're not even close to your physical potential. Now I need to convince you that you need to stick with this in a, in almost in a, in a sense that you're going to be unrewarded potentially for the next five years, but here's the kicker. You'll only be 21. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. How do you have that conversation? Well, it's, it's probably one of the toughest ones. And I think I've gotten better at it over the years because at first it was, you know, why don't you get this? You know, like it's so common sense. That's not so common, you know, and right. Um, you're 16, you don't have a, a, a man hair on your body, like, but you're, yep. but you're a good hockey player and you're intelligent. So just wait, just be patient. But these parents and the kids, they, they don't, they don't know what to do with that information. You know, they, right. they see his line mates that are fully in, in puberty, lifting weights, you know, are they're your young men as opposed to yeah. the peach fuzz, baby face, you know, baby fat kid, you know, and it's, I think it's becoming a little bit easier now because, you know, do some speaking, obviously, uh, you know, whenever I can, typically in the summer. And I've spoken at a couple of coaches conferences that are more, you know, directed towards the sport rather than sport performance. And. Right. It's funny, I go in and start talking about long-term athletic development and I got about half the room nodding and writing notes and like, yep, agreeing with me. And the other half just arms folded, sitting back, just kind of giving me stink eye. It's like, well, there's the new school versus the old school, right? The old school guys don't want to hear about it. They want to hear more time on ice and they want to hear just work harder. And the new school guys are going, okay, you know, this this makes sense. Maybe we should give them, you know, more athletic development as, as opposed to hockey development you know and it's i deal with organizations all the time that oh we won this many championships i'm like well how many of your kids got drafted how many of your kids graduate and still play midget and still you know are in university and they they don't even have those stats you know and to me it's about development it's about taking a kid from eight nine years old and not spitting him out at 14 15 and him quitting hockey and you know hanging out in you know my buddy's garage and doing all the things that we did in high school Instead, right. you know, continuation and playing and still playing and developing and, you know, whether it's Canadian University or NCAA or junior hockey, like at least it's they're still playing. And that's, again, not to get too off, but you okay. see the decline for enrollment in hockey across our country in Canada. And, you, you know, I don't I, I don't know how they don't see that as one of the reasons for that decline is the lack of, well, you know, a true development model. And that, that brings up a really good point because it, this, this situation is not so different than the old boxing coaches of the golden era that thought that lifting weights was going to make their fighters muscle-bound and slow. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea that now we understand and everybody that truly understands the role or the supporting role of a strength and conditioning professional understands that what happens on the ice, the field or the grass or the track is priority one. We all get that. And we all know that you have to be able to play the game to be good at the game. If, if, if you could just do bicep curls and play in the NFL, everybody would be doing bicep curls. We, we understand that. And by no means are we trying to tell people that the skill is not the priority. However, common sense even in a room where half of the arms are folded they have got to understand that putting a you know a young looking 
still not fully matured 18-year-old kid on the ice with, you know, someone of the past era like a Bob Probert is probably not anything to do with skill at that point as it has to do with physical development. Well, yeah, and, you know, I had an example of a kid who, uh, my company still works for the Oshawa Generals, which is like a an Ontario Hockey League team. So it's a junior, it's a feeder league to the NHL. And um, this kid got drafted and he was not developed. He was 100 and he was maybe 160 pounds. And, you know, he just started training, you know. So, and we'll come back to that, you know, the whole training age and what have you, which is, I, I think is super important. Obviously, I'm sure you do yeah. too. Um, Absolutely. You know, so he comes into our, our rookie camp and, you know, we happen to have, another kid there who was an American who had just joined our team but had played a couple of years of NCAA first and then you know he got drafted to the Leafs and whatever and he was a man he was six two and a half 225 pounds and I and I got them both in the room and I said to uh I said to the young the, the small kid I'm like you ready to go into the corner with him I said are you ready to take the puck away from that guy I said good luck I said that's why, right that's why you train you know, and that's, I wish I had that, you know, those types of opportunities more because it was so apparent that as good as you think you are, if you have that man, you know, cross-checking you in the small of your back, you're going to fold like a chair and he's going to take the puck yep. from you. So it doesn't matter how good your hands are. If you don't have some sort of physical um, maturity or capacity, whatever word you want to call it, then good luck, you know, and now you know fast forward i have the opportunity to try to and i don't mean this in an arrogant way but educate our organization on how we should draft and what we should expect with who we draft you know and you talk about training age you said you know one year of training a one year training age is 12 months under a guided program in my you know and that's i said if most of these kids that are getting drafted are are maybe one Maybe two. If you get a kid who has a two-year training age, you're, you're pretty lucky. And you might be scratching your head at that, but that's the reality. True story. And it's uh, training age is a big one for me. And, and we talk about it a lot in Olympic development, especially with kids that were coming up through track and field in terms of how many days, how many weeks, or how many months do you have hands-on and implement working on the actual aspect of the sport. And then you throw in the other side of how many – days, months, and years is that athlete under a barbell. And when you look at the average training age of a kid coming out of high school, and, and obviously in the NFL it's changed a lot because their off seasons have been basically suffocated, but you know, you're getting kids that are coming, say, out of high school that maybe because their parents are putting them in every single sport in America, that when they get under a barbell, their training age may be three or four months. Yeah. And people are like, wow, that doesn't make sense. They lift weights every year. We get that. Mm-hmm. But they may be the kid that's only doing two days a week in, a, in an organized schedule with a, with a coach before they have to go off and do their other practice or do whatever. So, yeah, you do the math on that. You're talking 52 weeks, okay, which you know they're not training every week. If that's their organized progression with a coach, okay, let's cut that back to let's call it 45 weeks, you know. That's two hours a week. So you're talking 90 hours a week is all that kid is training. Or sorry, 90 hours a year is all that kid is training. And when you start to look at it that way, yeah, that's basically a a flash 
or a, a blink of an eye in terms of human development. Mm-hmm. And when you start to look at that training age and you try to apply it to the elite level, they got a lot of ground to catch up, which I guess brings me to my next question. When you get to the NHL level, and granted, you've had the opportunity to do both where you've trained people in the off-season private training system, but when you get to the NHL level and you're working with these guys, how do you try to speed up that process? How do you try to get more years under their belt, for lack of a better description, to prepare them for that, the rigors of, of what we're going to get into, and that's the NHL schedule? Well, I think, I think it starts with, you know, draft day i said one of the biggest things that i wanted to impact or have impact on was you know from draft day to first game with you know the big club with the ducks you know and how how can i you know speed up that process like you just said and i said that to our management and i said you know i want to figure out a way where i can if you tell me that the player has you know the smarts the you know the all the right you know sport tools to be in our team but he lacks the physical tools you know, yep. what's the best way for me to really accelerate that process? And, you know, it starts at rookie camp, which is just after the draft. And we go through a series of testing. A lot of it is education. You know, so my first year, I said, I don't care if we work out. I want to teach these guys, you know, basic, basic stuff. And you'd be surprised. You already kind of hinted at it. But, you know, just mastering those basics, like warm ups, you know, like, yeah, foam rolling is foam rolling. Great. Whatever. But no, I mean, like, how do you get yourself ready to lift, you know, and all the feedback we got after the first year was like, this is the best rookie camp I've ever been to. And that's a credit to the coaches that were there helping me too, and and passionate and instructing and whatever, because we were teaching. And I said that to our development guy, who's awesome. He's a former player. He really gets it, which is which is a huge plus for me because he just lets me, you know, run with it. We did a cooking class. We talked about supplements. We talked about, you know, just kind of give them, it's information overload, but. uh, But you're covering so many bases. Yeah. And, and, and from there on it's, uh, you know, guided programming. Okay. If you're working with in hockey, that's one good thing and bad thing is that, like you said, there's so many different training centers throughout Canada. So you get these guys that we draft and then they go and train and it actually, I actually enjoy it because I get to meet other coaches and, you know, learn and steal stuff from them and, and whatever. And, um, you know, you just make sure that their programming is where it needs to be. And, and for me, it's always, did you improve? You know, we asked you to gain some weight. How are you going to do that? And here's some, you know, the ways in which you can do that. Here's the programming to follow. If they follow and, you know, everything is going great, great. If they're not, okay, we're going to interject. You know, I've had to change some some athletes to some different coaches and that's never a fun thing to do but for sure it's always again it's an it's i take on you know the education side of it where it's like i'd rather have a hard conversation with uh, an old coach and 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 get what the athlete needs you know instead of you know dealing with um less than favorable results year after year after year so it's to me, again, it goes back to education. It's it's why yep. you training, asking questions. You know, I always tell my players, our players now, is ask me questions. If you don't understand why I'm doing what I'm doing, or you know, if you if your trainer does it differently, tell me. I'll I'll phone your trainer. You know, like I I have a very yep. open book with that because I definitely don't know it all, and uh, I think life would be boring if I did. But I, I want to continue. Right. I want to yeah. continue to learn. You know, so if there's and I, and that's been a great part of it because I get to meet coaches from now from all over the world, 
you know, and it, and it just it, it strengthens the relationships I have with the players, too, you know, which is never a bad thing. Well, it, and I think that's a really key point, because in today's society where, you know, every asshole is the is the greatest coach that's ever walked the planet, but they also think they're also the most important human. And everybody has a little bit of an ego. I'm not saying that. And I think you need to have a little bit of an ego to be successful. But what people coming up in this industry have to realize the top coaches, and, and I know this from my own perspectives, I know this from uh, from getting inside the hive of a lot of other programs, the top guys share information. They don't share it every day. They're not just sitting there with playbooks open. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking the top strength performance guys have no problem having conversations about this and having conversations about programming and having conversations about what could work and what couldn't work. Like, you know, a guy like Kel Dietz is going to talk to a guy like me about strength and conditioning, completely open, completely everything on board. Because what we realize is the application of information is truly what the term coaching is. So we can go out and we can harbor all the information on the planet, but if we can't apply it and we can't use it to make our athletes better, then it's just noise. You know, uh, Jeff Nichols and I were talking about the difference between information and knowledge. And I, and I think that we're in a, a world right now where we got tons of information and people are trying to hold on to it because they think it's valuable. Mm-hmm. The value is in the application of information. I can read all the books in the world about how to do brain surgery, but God knows I'm not doing brain surgery tomorrow. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, and, and I certainly hope that no one would want me to, to do it on them. And, and I think you're making a huge point because you're at the top of the game in this sport. You know, uh, in the NHL, the teams that have people like yourself, your sole focus is inevitably – Okay, we can talk about keeping athletes healthy. We can talk about injury prevention, all that stuff. That's assumed. At the end of the day, it's winning games. Yeah. The sole purpose is winning and hopefully holding the cup at the end of the season. So if your ego prevents you from having a conversation with potentially uh, a game changer out there who has a ton of knowledge to share, but you're you're preventing yourself from interacting with that person because God forbid it makes you seem like you don't have the answers. You are jeopardizing the wins and losses column. Well, and if you could speak on that a little bit, because I think it's really important for those coming up. Well, yeah, and and I, it's something that you know I echo all your thoughts that what you just said there, as far as you know the humility of our profession that needs to continue to increase, you know, and guys like Cal Dietz, I'm going to see Cal on this Friday when we're in Minnesota just to right. shoot the shit and hopefully steal some stuff from him, you know, and, Absolutely. and, uh, you know, guys that I've, you know, I, I guess it starts with my, my assistant coaches, you know, my assistant here with the ducks and the two guys that I have in San Diego, when we have main camp, rookie camp, I sit back I go, all right, you got day one, you got day two here's the focus go coach yep you know and they lead coach. the room and oh man it's so cool to see those guys just rise and you know and and lead and i'm sitting there taking notes from them and i said you know it's not about me being above you this is just a position i have we are all part of this and you know good and bad i said yep in in my head if, if something goes wrong i'm going to take that blame just like i do with 
the many things and many mistakes I've made with my company. I said, there's no bad teams, just bad leaders. And that's a Jocko yeah. link. And it's sometimes that's hard to swallow, but it's true, you know, and it's ultimately me as a leader. It's, it's my, it's my job to put my staff in good positions and what have you. And I'm going off a little bit there, but no, keep it comes going back to when it comes back to actually sharing information and stuff like that. It's, you realize who the truly intelligent people are because those are the ones that are having these open conversations, you know, and right. the Mike Boyles and Cal Dietz is, and like disagree with whatever, you know, part of their programming. That means nothing to me. What it means is what it does mean is that these guys are trying things. They're making mistakes. Like, I don't know the best, best strength coaches in the world are the ones that have made the most mistakes. You know, these, yes. these gurus and these guys that have figured everything out, it's horse shit, in my opinion. It's funny. I agree. It's funny. I agree. It's complete horseshit. Because you, just the other night on LinkedIn, which I shouldn't put any value in, but um, the some guy reached out and said, oh, I'm going to cure all these man game lost injuries with my my specific program. And I, I, you know, I responded in probably not a professional way, but it was just one of, it was just the tipping point, you know, and I just said, yep. oh yeah, your magic formula, you know, and how many years have you worked in the NHL? Do you know our schedules? Do you know what it's like to deal with management? You have no idea. You have no idea. Nope. You know, my my success, quote unquote, is is based on my relationship with the players, is getting their trust. If you don't yep. have that, good luck. Good luck. Good luck. You've already lost them. And I know like when I was in Cleveland and it's changed since with the Browns, in season and people refuse to believe this that are way outside the window we had anywhere from 55 to 85 minutes a week with our players in season and it just depended on the situation i can tell you an example of a wide receiver that was in year 15 uh extremely good wide receiver he was so damaged that his weight and people are like, well, you should have been doing more prehab, rehab, all this bullshit, right? And it's like, well, he had sort of earned the right that his weight room day was him walking through and just sort of giving a wave to the head strength coach and out he went to the therapy room. Yeah. And p people don't realize that those are the things you're dealing with. Or, you know, and I don't know what it's like in the NHL, but in the NFL, we had guys that had it written into their contract that they were not to train with the strength coach wow. because these guys get bounced around so much and they get exposed to so many different programs so often that this guy had been in the league for 15 years. He's, he spent a lot of money on his human performance side and it showed. And he was like, listen, why would I, I was with a different team, you know, a month ago on a different periodization, supposedly, why would I come over here and just throw all that away and assume that you have it all figured out? So this guy, when he got traded in, always had a clause that he would continue with his private strength and conditioning program, but he would come in at our set hour time. So we knew that he was accountable. Mm -hmm. Those are variables that people aren't ready for when they think of strength and conditioning. No. They think that they got all the power, right? They think it's, they're in control. You're not in control. No. You're doing the best you can to support a huge machine. So, you know what, when you add on, go ahead. Too, yeah. the, other, the other part to that is too, is you're dealing with people. These human beings, these are human beings. Yeah. like these guys have, you know, families and I end up talking more about, you know, shit our kids do than, than, you know, 
squat schemes. You know what I mean? Like yep. it's 100%. It's, and you got to be careful too the, of the professional and personal stuff. But, you know, like yep. I, I feel like we have such a great group of guys. That's what keeps me motivated to try to help them, you know, and, and yes. to obviously try to win is because yep. I think about how great it would be to win with this group, you know, how much right. because of the relationships that I've created. And anybody that comes into our, you know, uh, team and whatever, they just, they feel that as well. So I feel like we got a special group here. And I think a lot of coaches would say that, a lot of good ones anyways. And yep. it's it is so much less about X's and O's. And yeah, we're doing up our, our summer program right now. We're kind of in the middle of planning that just, um, well, not in the middle, we're almost, we're pretty much done. But, you know, putting that yep. all together. And yeah, that's fun for sure. But ultimately, it's the delivery. It's the day to day, like, I'll give you an example. The last, you know, 30 or so days, it started with an 11-day road trip, home for five yes. days in which we had two games. So it really means I'm home for three days. And then right back onto the road for another nine days, home for a day, road trip again, home for five or six days. So I'm with these guys more than I'm with my family. 100%. So, and they're in the same boat, right? Yeah. So if you're a dick and all you care about is, you know, the, the reps and sets and this and that they're going to tune you out fast. So you're, you're going to be, you're going to be the geek on the bus. And yeah. it's the thing that people have to understand, especially at, when you get into this level for a lot of these guys. And I know for us and, and the NFL, like this, is what people have to understand, the NFL has a season, a fraction of the length of the NHL. You guys are road warriors compared to what we dealt with in the NFL. We would hang out, go away and battle, come back and hang out. We had very consistent lives. And even then, by, you know, due to the demands of being at the facility all the time for video and what have you, that the weight room became very much their escape mm -hmm. from the responsibility of the ice or the field. And I would assume it's very much like that for you with the players. Like they come to the weight room because sometimes it's for some of them, it's a chance to get the eyes off them. Oh, big time. And, and I think I've, it's funny. My assistant and I were talking about that the other day is this is the best room that they come to, you know, yes. because there, there's a level of trust. Number one, they know that I'm not a coach. I'm a coach, but I'm not, you know, like I'm the hybrid, which is a great spot to be because they know they can have conversations with me. They know that I'm there for them. Or I've made that very, you know, I've made that statement. I'm here for the, our performance and I'm here for the yeah. performance of the players. Yeah, ultimately, it bleeds into other things and I want to win too. And I'm not babying anybody. It's not about that. It's just, yep. you know, the, the conversations are honest and whatever. And guys can relax a little bit. But when it's time to work, we work, you know. And it's, it's, it's just interesting because... You know, you talk about the NFL. I work with, I still work with some private athletes and a couple NFL guys. And just as an example of that, you know, the mentality of some of these coaches, and it's not bashing anybody. I think it just goes back to that humility. And, you know, one of my guys, he's a veteran guy. He's won a few Super Bowls now. And he went to this team that was very successful and just fit. I just spent the whole offseason just fixing him, you know, and not just, yes. but like he really good hands on therapists and doctors as well. And, you know, just getting him to get into a good low, you know, as low as he can in a squat. And it wasn't perfect, but it was good. And, you know, he'd put some weight on his back and it was, it was great. First thing yep. the strength coach says, more weight on the bar and get deeper, you know, without, right. <laughs> without even, uh, 
you know, yeah. having a conversation. And, you know, what does he do? He gets hurt. I'm like, well, why'd you listen, number one? And he goes, well, because I'm a player and I need to listen, which is a great attitude. But, you know, right. I know I went off there, but I just had to feel like. No, I, it's a perfect there. example <laughs> because it's an example of of when you're when you're dealing with soldiers over you know, generals mentality. And some people are great soldiers. They're, they're meant to be on your team. They're meant to get a job done. But if the coach is not on top of their game, the general or the leader of that group, they're going to get them hurt yeah. and they're going to sacrifice them for their own ego. And I, and I talk about this a lot and it's the difference between, and, and I say this in all honesty, they're shitty coaches at the highest level. Oh, yeah. So it's the difference between good coaches at the highest level that still can separate their ego and make, you know, and just get past it. Like when I got into the NFL, I was having a conversation with a quarterback and, and a very high level quarterback. He's still in the league, you know, here we are 11 years later. And I remember, I remember clearly his previous head strength coach had him do a max effort inclined bench press the day before they played quarterback. And he goes, he goes, you know, I knew it was a bad idea while we're doing it. He goes, I don't bench as a, as a necessity anyway. He goes, but they told me that if I didn't bench that, you know, I was, it was going to look bad to the rest of the team. And I'm like, well, how did you feel? And he's like, thank God I didn't have to play on Sunday. He goes, cause I couldn't reach above my head. This is NFL level decision making. Yeah. Okay. And, and people are like, how can that be? Well, because sometimes people get through and coaches are no different. Sometimes they get through and they always did what they've always done. And, and I, and I don't want to be a total dickhead, but I'm going to be honest. And it's because sometimes in professional sports teams still win, even though the coaching staff may be making a lot of mistakes. And so when you get a situation where you can have intellectual coaches come in that can put that ego aside, and this can, this filters all the way down to, in my opinion, you know, human performance coaches that are working with private clientele. If you can put that ego aside and put the onus back on the education and development of that athlete you start to develop that trust that you're talking about, the one room that they can come to and know that they're not going to have to play political games. All they're going to do is they're going to come in and hopefully do good quality work. They're going to, ex- they're going to exercise. They're going to train hard. They're going to try to get better at being the athlete again and not all these subcategories that they at the professional level that they have to check off every day because they're a part of the career side of it. And when you're dealing with these guys that are coming in, and I know you're on the road right now, how do you deal with the rigors of on-road training? If you can talk about that a little bit, because I know it's a little bit different than I ever dealt with. It's probably more like I dealt with with college track and field, to be honest. Yeah, you know what? It's um, it's one of those things where you ha- you really have to make the best of what you got. You know, we, we stay at a lot of very nice hotels, which, you know, is always good. Um, but it sometimes means the gyms are, uh, on the fluffier side, you know, so there's, you know, again, I, I think in terms of my training, it's evolved to the point of, I'm looking at a lot more just movement, you know, and I, Hey, I love lifting weights and all my guys lift. It's not about that. It's just more, you know, less barbell, more dumbbell, you know, more, 
more complex stuff, not complex in the, in in difficulty, but more combination movements, stuff like that. And I'm just as I watch guys move, it's constant assessment, you know. And I'm still learning about guys on our team that are somewhat new to our to our club and and how they work and and what works for them. You know, having a good hotel gym is fantastic. It it means I can get a little bit more work done, but it also means on the road, you know, reaching out to people and, and going to private gyms. Like we mentioned Crashly there. We always always try yep. to go there with a few guys. Cal, you know, I'll probably take a, a handful of guys to his gym because the guys that, you know, really want to lift. And that's the other thing, too. There's guys in our team that like lifting and what happens. Yep. But there's guys that hate it and know that they hate have, to, it. have to do it. Um, but you know, on a day off they're they're sure shit ain't going to come with me to a, a gym that we have to get in a cab and go to, you know what I mean? So it's absolutely, um, we try to get the majority of our work done, you know, at the rink. I mean, sometimes it's hard, but we, obviously we have the hotel gyms to, to, uh, to do some stuff there as well. But to be honest, the, um, you know, one of the things that I try to focus on is get a lot of our lifting done when we're at home, you know, and, and right. to kind of save the road for, you know, recovery stuff and, and what have you. I mean, if we have a long flight like we did on Monday, we get off the plane, we'll, we'll do a little workout called a workout or stretch or whatever for about half an hour. And that's no yep. equipment. That's all kind of, you know, some stretching, some some ground-based stuff, some movement, and, you know, a little light aerobic work just to wake them up a little bit. But, I mean, that's, you know, people want to people want to say, oh, you know, you should do this program and you should have them at 80%. Okay, g- good luck with that. You know, good luck with it's just not logical. No, it's is not. It? It's really not. The the biggest thing I focus on on the road is nutrition. Is yep. making sure that all our meals, post game, pre game, practice days, that I'm hitting. You know, I'm I'm doing good with those meals and making sure that yep. we're hitting all the criteria that I like to hit and that guys are, you know, hydrated. I know it sounds whatever, but that's what I focus on because I know I can have some control over that. The lifting, I can't. You know. You can't, and, and there's there's this generation right now that that don't realize that you know. It, and I'm not talking just the fitness generation. I'm talking strength and conditioning generation. You know, through the the previous employer that I had, we were teaching a curriculum that was was taught by a guy that falls under the category of a guru. And this idea that you had these perfect parameters, and I remember listening to lectures that they were giving to people that in their mind were going to go on to the highest level of coaching, not personal training. So they, they wanted to be in the NHL and the NFL, et cetera. And they were talking about peaking in the weight room, peaking athletes towards hundred percentile RMs in back squats and cleans and bench presses and things of this nature. Once the season begun, this idea that they were going to, to maximize maximal strength. You've, you live in this world. If you can speak a little bit to the delusion, because I think it's important that people get this, get a clear sense of this, the delusional mindset that that is compared to somebody that trains an Olympic sport athlete that gets four years with this perfect calendar. How much of a delusion is it to be hitting one RMs as you're in the midst of a NHL season? You know, it, it goes back to what you said about, you know, fitness testing and stuff like that. You know, there's still teams in the NHL. I don't, I don't think there's very many, but they still do weightlifting tests for testing, which Jeez. I cannot believe. And NFL, same thing. There's a few teams that do some of it, maybe not as yeah. much anymore, but it blows me away. Like, 
to me, it's risk reward. It's, you know, not that I would ever admit it, but, you know, maybe even a little bit of job security is that I'm Absolutely. I'm not going to let somebody pull above 80% of their capacity at any point in time. Pull, push, nope. whatever you want to call it. Never. Because I know what they go through. I've seen it. I've seen how they break down. And I, I, I've said this before, too. My, You could do any scan you want. I got companies weekly that, oh, we got this new thing and whatever. Sleep, yeah, sure. Okay, whatever. My scan is when our guys walk through our doors. What is right. your, what's your body language look like? What is your skin tone? How about your eyes? Looks like you had some drinks right. last night. You know what I mean? Like that's <laughs> absolutely that the, is think, that is my value as a coach, in, in my opinion, is I can read our room. You know, like yeah. this is hey, I could tell you when we're gonna win games. You know, or right. when we have at least have a good chance because I feel it in our room. I feel the energy. Music's good. Guys are smiling. Guys are focused. Like it's it's not you know it's not a tickle fight, but it's it's some in, enjoyable focus, yep. if that's even a word. Yep. Um, you know, and it's to think that, you know, you can start picking apart strength and conditioning as far as, yeah, we're going to, you know, everybody's going to trap our deadlift at 85%. Well, my gym is not very big at, at our game rink. So I got two squat racks, or two half racks. Right. So, and I got two trap bars. So right there, it's impossible because after the game, all 20 guys come in at the same time. Right. So again, because they've been there for most of the day because of the morning skate and then coming back for the game. Most guys come about three hours before the game. So they want to go home and they want to eat, you know, yes. so, or sorry, they want to eat and then want to go home. To go home. You know? yeah. So you're dealing with that as well because maybe their family's at the game, maybe this. So our workouts are 20 to 30 minutes, like yep. 30 minutes on the long side. You know what I mean? It's, it's more about, how much efficiency efficiency and quality work and movement can I get in? How can I, how can I make sure that these guys walk out of our rink tonight and they feel good and better yet when they come back in tomorrow morning at 11 AM for another practice? Cause our team loves to practice. Yep. Are they going to feel good then too? And that's why we lift after games, right? Because I'm trying to kind of avoid that post day soreness. If they're already going to be sore from the game. I'm just going to add in another two, 3% which I don't yep. think is as detrimental as saying, okay, that next morning we're going to try and front squat everybody. You know? Absolutely. It's just, uh, man, I think what you're saying is hugely important because there's a bunch of things that you've hit on. Some of it is the psychological factor of performance. Some of it is the emotional, like uh, sensory side of performance. Um, there's a guy that just came out with a book, as 12 rules to life, etc. Uh, Jordan Peterson is guy from Canada as well. He's been on Joe Rogan, etc. But Jordan Peterson talks a lot about the effects that confidence and serotonin release has on postural changes and its relationship to either success or depression. Mm -hmm. And he uses this uh, scientific study that was done using lobsters. Okay. I won't get into it, but basically because a lobster has one of the simplest nervous systems on the planet, they were able to study the shit out of them. Mm -hmm. and, and what they d discovered is that as an, a lobster's serotonin levels escalate due to victory and achievement and dominance, uh, they become the dominant male, particularly uh, lobster of the area, and they mate the most. 
But and vice versa, when these lobsters that challenge them get the shit kicked out of them, their nervous system starts to shut down. And when their nervous system shuts down, they go into a protective mechanism and they start to turn in on themselves. We see it all the time as coaches. We see the guy that walks into the weight room that is feeling like shit. Maybe they got a cold. Maybe their wife is... Uh, not doing so well in the relationship with them. Maybe their girlfriend dumped them. Maybe they got punched in the face in the last game and it hasn't really wore off because their ego took a huge hit and their body language is turning in. As they say, it looks like they're, they're protecting themselves from being attacked from the back. And that is literally some of the most important information that you should be keen in on. And you don't have to be particularly empathetic to figure this out. That is just a giant billboard of human movement walking in. If you got a guy walking in and he's light on his toes and his head's up and his eyes on the horizon and he's basically got the hunter's gaze and a big smile on his face, he's good to go. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's so funny, too, with our group is, you know, I think it's hockey players in general that it's a roller coaster. You know, and one of the things that they make fun of me for saying is, you know, not too high, not too low. You know, like just don't stay in the middle let's stay even keel it's hey we win great but let's celebrate then we're back to work back to work and that my wife gets angry with me because i do that with our kids you know it's like hey you did really great now let's keep moving forward you know and she no let's you know keep celebrating no let's keep moving forward you know and that's keep moving forward it's, it's one of those things i think both my parents are irish and um you know that that work ethic of yeah, okay, we did good. Let's keep going. You know, it's it's not yes. I wouldn't say it's overly admirable, but I think it's it builds in a strong, you know, framework around how to work for things and how to kind of strive for whatever you want to strive for and how to work for it. And I think that's with 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 athletes in general like to be able to read and pick up on those things and I'm, you know, I don't think it's any sort of gift. I think it just comes with experience. And, you know, especially when male versus female and like, oh, my God, you know, it's to to me now it's just so like, okay, I know this is going to be a good day. I know we can push the pace a little bit or it's like, hey, I just got to make these guys feel a little bit better. You know, like it just got to, you know, hey, roll out, stretch, do this thing and see you later. Really? Oh, okay. You know, like if I can add to that at all, like, and again, I don't think that's babying or. Any of that stuff no. some hardcore coaches would, you know, maybe try to call me out on. It's more about what does this athlete need and how can I benefit them right now to, again, um, say we how do we make day. them? How do we make them better? Yeah, you know, like how do you make them better? How do you make them a winner tomorrow? Yeah, right. And it's like regardless of what happens today. So if they had a high or a low, you got to balance that, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, and it goes both ways. You got you want to keep that high going. If the high has been rolling, you want to keep that winner's mentality rolling. You got to be careful with that. You don't want to be the guy that pulls the carpet from out from under them. And people are like, well, you know, what do you mean you only let them roll out or shake out and go home? And it's like, listen, that guy that came in that has been playing so hard or maybe the game was particularly difficult for him because he had to grind it a bit and got beat up during that game and you just you just sort of gave him that sort of head nod and and thumbs up pass right man you you gave it to him and his his confidence just went through the roof because what he needed 
was rest. Yeah. But there is no fucking way he's going to tell you that he's going to quit that day. Well, and, and the other thing, too, is that I, I would way rather work with an athlete. And I'm, and I'm fortunate enough to I think the majority of the people that I work with are the people that I need to pull back. Yes. You know, and I really I really enjoy that because I'm not I'm not here to motivate anybody. And yeah, I know that's part of our job at some point, you know, a little kick in the ass. And yeah, yeah that's fine. But, you know, I'm definitely not one of those coaches that will. Oh, come on, man. Like, you know, no, right. that's definitely not me. I, I'll do my best to motivate. But I'm lucky enough that most of the athletes are like, hey, we're not doing anything today. And this is why. Yep. And I, I think, right. you know, as long as you give it to them in a reason with reason and with with knowledge and with uh you know going on past experience or you know specific to the athlete it's they agree and because they know you know they they also they, most for the most part they also have that intuition as well i could do something yeah. but i know that i probably shouldn't you know but they're already they're so driven and they're so switched on you know that it's it's hard to turn that off too Absolutely. And, and I think that's a key point. Like it's, uh, at that level. And, and I would argue that with any level in terms of, of working with athletes that are truly trying to make a difference in their own performance, consistency with a push is more important than trying to be exuberant and motivating. Yeah. I find that the the fireworks of motivation are best spent on things like social media pages and a one hour delivery that some guy comes in and gives as a keynote. And that's fine. There's a place for it. That's great motivation. Maybe it gave you a little pep in your step for the next few days of training. But when you're talking real world, real work being done, the consistency is key. I, you know, I remember at the time I wasn't sure how to take it, but I now look back on it as probably the best compliment I've ever received as a coach. And I remember a running back for the Browns came up to me, you know, we'd been, we had an okay year that year. It's probably the only okay year they've had in, in a couple dozen. So <laughs> it hasn't been great for them. And so he came up to me and he's, you know, and he's just like, yo man, he's like, he goes, you know, he goes, everybody's all over the place. He goes, we have a chance to make the playoffs. You got people going crazy. You got some people panicking. He goes, every day we come in, you're the same. He goes, the players notice. If we're up, we're up. If we're down, we're down. You just come in and you're always you. You're very level. And that was his compliment. And he didn't say a lot, so that sort of surprised me that he took that much time. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I'm like, oh, man, maybe is that good or bad? Like, should I be? more noticeable, right? Like, am I, am I not drumming up our success enough at certain times? And, and I thought about it for the rest of the day and I'm like, no, man, that's the key. Yeah. The key is so. to bring up the middle, mm -hmm. to bring up the average, right? Like, fuck man, if you're bouncing off the walls when, when the team's winning and in the fucking toilet when they're shitty, that is exhausting. Oh fuck. You know what? To, to that point too, I feel you know, when we lose a game, I think this is just hockey in general. It is the worst place to be. Our dressing room is the worst, you know, and it's it drives me crazy. When I first started working in Toronto, I was it actually made me mad, you know, because it's yep. like, hey, we play again tomorrow. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> you know, and yes. I had to learn too. It was like, you know, yeah, you should be upset. But at the same time, like. You know, I, I would probably overreact to the loss. Like, hey, cheer up! Like, let's get to work and let's. So I, I've I've not 
to yeah. that level anymore, but I always try to keep yep. it. Hey, it's just another game. We have, you know, 80 more of them. So we, you yes. have an opportunity to redeem yourself. What are you going to do to make yourself better? You know, and absolutely, I, I think that's to your point, it's being level and being consistent is much, much more valuable. And in the long run, it's just healthier. You know, like it's you, you can't be a cheerleader when we win because not everybody is happy that we won. You know, and, and no. that's kind of a weird thing to say, but I, I saw that my first year and, you know, you get those self, a little more selfish athletes, which we don't have anymore, but who they weren't happy about a win because they didn't score or they, yes. you know, they got beat up or, you know, whatever, they got embarrassed and all of a sudden we lose, but that same guy gets two goals and he's, he's up bopping around the gym like he, like we won, you know, and it's like, yep, mm, that's not a good way to be either. You know, so it's striking that balance for lack of a cliche word. <laughs> it is, and it, it because people forget that elite athletes are individual franchises inside a franchise. Yeah, and 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 a lot of them motivation number one is themselves, and and so all you can really do is try to keep keep the waters calm so that. You know, like we used to get it. We called it, the, you know, it was the Tuesday. Well, I should say, yeah, Monday morning fights. So what that was in the NFL was if there was going to be a fist fight in the weight room, win or loss on the field, it was Monday mornings um, hmm. because Tuesday was our mandatory day off uh, with the NFL at the time. Sunday night, they would all go out. <laughs> and even though they had to come in Monday, that 5 a.m. group Monday mornings was a mixed bag of emotion Jeez. because you, yeah. And so, <laughs> so when we had scraps in the weight room, which I don't know if you guys get in hockey the way we'd get them, at least they have a tendency to be able to solve those problems on the ice yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> in football, they would fight in the weight room. And it was always sort of the same driving motivation. It was a guy that if say we had a loss, had a hell of a game, and went out and partied his ass off because he felt like he had been a superstar regardless of the team. And he would come in drunk or hungover or still awake from the night before. And a player that was maybe a little more of a, a journeyman team guy, they would get into it. Yeah. Because they'd be like, listen, we lost yesterday and you show up drunk and off they go. You know, it's uh, it's Monday morning at the fights. And, mm. and, when you're dealing with that, it, it creates a complexity to sport coaching because the, what people don't realize is a lot of that animosity and frustration that gets worked out rarely gets worked out in front of the head coaching staff. Yeah, very true. It has a tendency to get worked out in the confinement of the 5 a.m. weight room where they have this safety net around them because no one's going to say shit like that fight's not making the news and that fight sure surely isn't making upstairs because for the most part it usually gets broke up in time and as a performance coach when you're dealing with that type of personality it comes back to a you can't take it personal because they're probably going to say things at certain times in that environment that isn't really polite and b you have to be consistent because they're going to come back in tomorrow and those same two guys that may have had a disagreement because of the intensity of sport and the intensity of competitiveness, they're going to be best buddies tomorrow. So you just have to let it flow. Yeah. And, and it's a long and, season. And that's, 
it's a long season. You know, the, the NHL is one of those funny seasons where each month has about 47 days, you know, and yeah, it's intense. So before I I let you sort of get off the line with me, because I know you're busy, what's the schedule for you guys look like coming up over the next couple of weeks? Are you guys on the road long-term or you got more of the same? Um, most of our road or heavy road stuff is kind of behind us now, which is nice. Um, yep. This is kind of the, I think we, so we got the rest of the week, we head to uh, Chicago tonight after the game. And then we're in Chicago for a practice and then we play them Thursday night. And then we head to Minnesota and then we're back to Minnesota or sorry, we're back to California Saturday night, home for a day and then to Vegas for a day ga- or a day trip for a game. And then I think we have a couple games at home and then one more Canada road trip, which is probably our longest. I think it's four or five days. And then, yeah, the season's kind of winding down. We're, we're kind of in the just on the brink of the playoffs here. We're kind of bouncing yep. in and out of them. So it's, uh, you know, it's an important stretch for us. Like this road trip, these next four games are pretty massive for us. We need to, you know, probably win three out of four. Um, yep. to really continue to push for the playoffs. So, and this, you know, Absolutely. this team is extremely talented, but you know, some weird injuries, some off season surgeries that had to happen. And, you know, our captain took a slap shot to the face, broke three bones in his face. Like, you know, he's back now, but you know, that, that sets you back. He's one of the best players in the world. So, it, you know, you don't have that guy around. It's makes things a little more difficult. It's, <laughs> it's significant. The things that you can't plan for. Yeah. And, you know, outside of your time with the Ducks, if people wanted to get a hold of you or some of your staff, either for uh, speaking engagements, coaching, hopefully, is what they're really searching out. What's the easiest way for them to get a hold of you? Uh, I mean, all the other regular social media at Fitzgerald ETS is probably the easiest. Um, our website for the gym back home is FitzgeraldETS.com you'll find most of the information about kind of our programming and stuff like that. But I'm on all the social media channels and, you know, do my best to connect with people as often as possible. And that's probably the best way. In, in closing, if you were to give maybe two pieces of advice to an up and coming coach, hockey or otherwise that really sort of wants to make this their career, because we know it's a long road. Mm -hmm. I think both you and I, damn near did it for free for longer than we'd like to admit, you know, um, <laughs> what would you say? Like outside of patience and outside of persistence, what do they have to get good at? You took my two best. Uh, I know <laughs> I, I have to steal them because they're probably the two first ones I think of. Yeah. Know? I mean, I, I think, I mean, obviously passion is, is an overused one, but you do really have to love it. You know, like you have to love it. And I think, you know, I'll, I'll give an example with my wife. She knows how much I love it. I, I've, I've, I've said to her all the time, you know, you know, when, whenever the gym does this, I won't go in as much. Or, you know, whenever we get to this point, she's like, you're so full of shit, you know, because you're, you're, you're never going <laughs> to yeah. stop. And it's, it's true. Like it's yeah. just fine. It's so fascinating. Our, our world, you know, that performance world, whatever you want to call it is so fascinating. And you get to, you know, meet so many different people like I was talking about a story last night with um, uh, one of my NFL guys is here in town. So we had dinner and I was telling him about uh, hit training, which everybody thinks yep. they do hit training, which is not the truth. Cause I'm talking about Arthur Jones, like the real hit training. Right. I used to go and train with this guy in South Florida who was a psychopath. And 
<laughs> to meet guys like that that are doing things so differently than what I do, but still getting, you know, but we still get results. You know, each of us, yep. we still get results. And the fact that you can do our job in so many different ways and that there's so many different avenues in which to do it, I think is part of my passion around it, if that makes sense, is that, absolutely, you know, you can kind of just dive into this thing any which way you want. And yeah, I'm in hockey, but I like a lot of other sports too. And I may even find myself working in some other sports down the line. Who knows? But I think that's that's yep. definitely a big part of it. Um, the other advice is 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 network. And I think yep. not network in the weird, like, you know, cornering people at conferences type stuff, but just network because it's genuinely, you're genuinely interested in people. You know, like yes. I think you and I got connected uh, a few years back and I think it was just out of, you know, mutual friends and, and kind of networking. And I, I'm like, absolutely. This guy's smart. You know, I'm talking about you. This guy's smart. He's been in, he's been around. Now I want to learn from him. You know, and I think to have yep. that genuine curiosity and and to be able to talk to people and not be weird and I mean nothing wrong with right. weird. I I'm weird too, but yep. it's it's more of a curiosity around, hey, there's other ways to do this. And I think Mike Boyle is a perfect example of that. Um a buddy of mine, Brett Bartholomew, wrote a really good book, uh, Conscious Coaching. I think every strength coach should definitely read that one. It's, it's absolutely more, it, it touches on a lot of the things that we talked about today about you know, the athletes and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and really the personal side of our business or our job is, is one that a lot of coaches miss out on. They like putting letters and certifications beside their names. And yeah, I have a lot of those too, but it's, if you can't talk to people, if you can't converse with people, like you're not going to go as far as you think you can go. No, I, I agree a hundred percent. I think I, the first time we met face to face was at Sornex and and I think during that presentation, I, I, someone asked, you know, what advice would you give an up and coming coach? And I, I remember at the time saying, in my opinion, if you've got all the certifications covered and you've got a lot of time in the weight room and you truly understand all the ins and outs of basic periodization, if you're still failing to make an impact, you need to learn how to communicate better. Mm -hmm. That's exactly You need to learn. You know, yeah, because at the end of the day, the application of coaching and this is and and uh, and hopefully we'll agree, if not, just call me bullshit from the start. But um, but I think the you know, like when you get through all the the gray mist of it, the application of coaching is the ability to communicate a concept. Oh, 100 percent. 100%, right? Like, and people think it's, they have all this science and theory. Listen, writing, writing math on a, on a grease board still doesn't give you the right to call yourself a math teacher. You still have to teach it mm -hmm. and how you get to the process of getting all that complex algebra on a grease board is that's, that's the difference. Well, if it, and Boyle says it too because I, I, I'm referencing Boyle just because we spoke at a conference together not that long ago and you know I said to him I'm, I feel like I'm getting old because I'm getting better at explaining things I'm getting better at explaining my whys to athletes right? and they're getting right. it faster and it's like and my programming isn't all that different it's just I'm able to you know, vocalize it or, or visualize it for an athlete for them for that to make it make sense. 
And it's just like yeah. athletes getting smarter, which I think they are for sure. But I also yep. think that I'm becoming a better coach, you know, and, and that tells me that, you know, I'm, I'm on the right path. Absolutely. And it's, uh, and it starts to show up slowly. Your average comes up, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it, it really does come back to that. And Judd Logan always used to tell this to me. He's like, you're never going to be your highest or lowest days. You're going to be the collective average of your middle. And so, you know, you're going to have those days where you go out and hit that PR and that's fantastic. Congratulations. That's your new best. But if you only use your personal record as a level of establishment for your quality as a player or an athlete, by default, you have to use your worst day as well. Mm -hmm. And that's neither fair or recommended, right? Like Tom Brady would be a great example in recent football history. You know, last year, the <laughs> the entire world changed Tom Brady's name to the GOAT, right? Yep. He immediately became the greatest of all time. Well, how do you explain this year? If you only use that moniker for him for the rest of his life, then he has nothing more to work for. And that would steal from him the one thing that he probably loves more than anything, and that is to be an athlete. Yeah, yeah, true. You know? Very true. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really important to bring up that middle. I think you hit a home run with, with that point, and I hope that people really take that to heart because it is the consistency of center is the key to great long-term coaching. Be the highest level of average that you could possibly achieve. You're going to have PR still, and you're going to have shitty days, but how high can your day-to-day -day become? You know? Yeah, I agree. Awesome. 100%. Well, well, it's been absolutely awesome having you stop by Ecobolic Radio. I know you got a busy schedule and the rest of the day coming up. Um, I, I can't thank you enough. Hopefully that we'll get to uh, sit down and have another conversation in the not-too-distant future and see how the uh, growth and progression of uh, professional coaching is treating you. Sounds good, man. I appreciate the time. It's been awesome. Awesome, Mark. Thank you very much. Hey, okay, brother. Take care. All right, bye. Thank you for listening to Ecobolic Radio. For more information about upcoming guests and episodes, please follow Derek Witzke on his Instagram or at DerekWitzke.com. 